As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolas, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello everyone and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. I'm Nick Botsolis, and once again I'm happy to have you all here with me. I pray that this past week you all had a fantastic New Year's celebration, Kalikronia, and Happy New Year. And I pray that 2023 is a fruitful year for all of you. So, last week we talked about Mark chapter 8. And toward the end of the chapter, we we started to see a narrative shift, if you will. And that shift is from the teachings of Christ, from his general healings, to the coming passion. And this comes with the first prediction that Christ makes of his suffering and his death and ultimately his resurrection. And we're going to see this motif continued in chapter 9. Chapter 9, for the most part, is predicated on Christ's revelation of what's to come, his revelation of what has come in the Messianic age. This is a motif that we've been talking about off and on up until this point, yet Christ is going to continuously hammer this point home in this chapter, in in the coming chapters, so that his apostles are prepared, so that when he dies and raises on the third day, that seed is already planted and germinating in them. And when they see the revelation of him raising from the dead, that seed will begin to flourish. That seed will come to fruition and be the plant that it was meant to be. So, without further ado, we're going to hop into verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. Verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So, let's break down that verse. Well, first of all, if you're looking at either your RSV or your New King James Version of the Bible, you might be a little confused with how things are laid out here. Uh, This verse seems to be a continuation of the verses that Christ ended with in our last chapter. And a lot of what we're seeing structurally in the text just comes down to what later scholars were trying to do in categorizing um, the, the text itself. If you're looking at the RSV, 
the revised standard version that is, you're going to see a lot of headings and you're going to see the verse numbers and the chapter numbers, things that are very similar to what you'll see in the either King James Version or the New King James Version if you're using the Orthodox Study Bible. And it's important to realize that you didn't have verse numbers in the original text. In fact, you didn't have punctuation really in the original text. Um, you definitely didn't have these section dividers that we're using. And that's okay. These are things that we've added later to try to understand the structure a little bit better of the text. Um, but we'll see flaws occasionally that come up like this one, where bleeding into chapter 9 is a verse that seems, structurally speaking, to be attached to chapter 8. And I don't really have a lot of knowledge as to why this decision was made, but I think it's important to highlight the fact that it's here, it is part of the structure, but again, these chapter headings, these chapters, and these verse numbers are later editions. There are way of trying to wrap our head around the structure of the text, and it's okay when we have these inconsistencies sometimes, because it reminds us that humans put together these structures, these, these after-the-fact structures, and we're fallible. And sometimes we don't have the answers to everything. And it seems to me that placing this verse, this first verse of chapter 9, where it's located outside of the prior chapter, is an example of that. But let's break down what's actually happening in the verse, because I think it's very important to see here that Christ is not contradicting himself. Oftentimes, when people read this verse, scholars in particular, you see this interpretation that, well, okay, the early church was waiting for the resurrection. They thought Christ was going to come immediately. And since he didn't come immediately, they were wrong in this interpretation. But we need to remember the greater context of what's been happening in the Gospel according to St. Mark so far. When we've been talking about the motif of this age versus the messianic age. We have expressed time and time again that the messianic age is this participation in life in Christ. So we can see this coming of the kingdom. We can actively participate in this coming of the kingdom, even though we're living simultaneously in this age. And that's important for us to wrap our head around because this is the understanding that Mark and all of those in the early church had of their life in Christ. Yes, they were looking for the resurrection of the dead. Yes, they were looking towards the second coming. But they were also participating in this messianic age. They were also living this life in Christ. So when we hear that there will be those who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God that has come with power, well, really what we're hearing here is that after the veil has been lifted in the sense, after the resurrection has happened, 
in the apostles understand who it is that they've been with this whole time. Well, when that happens, they're going to be actively participating in this messianic kingdom. So I think it's important for us to remember that this statement here isn't a contradiction of Christ. The statement here isn't saying that there are some of the people around him who won't taste physical death until the second coming. Rather, it's those, and this again is my interpretation um, based off of what I've read and what I've seen, and I might be completely wrong, but it seems to me, based off of what the text has been telling us so far, that Christ is saying that those who are participating in this messianic age, who are living this life in the messianic age, will not taste death before that participation takes place. So although they may taste physical death, they will ultimately be raised when he comes again. So yes, there is this resurrection that we are looking towards. There's this resurrection that we are going to participate in in the future date. But we're also invited, with this motif again of the Messianic Age, to participate in that resurrection in our life now. So that seems to me to be what he's getting at here in telling them that there are some around him who will not taste death until they see this kingdom of God come in power. Because the kingdom is there, yet they don't fully grasp it yet, as we often don't fully grasp the fact that we can participate in this kingdom. So moving on to verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garment became glistening, intensely white, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. And they appeared to them, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is well that we are here. Let us make three booths, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were exceedingly afraid. And a cloud overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son listened to him, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So, to begin with this verse, we need to look at the motif of six days. The six-day motif is leading us all the way back to Exodus, when Moses ascends the mountain to receive the law, and if we, again, see this mountain motif, what's that telling us? Well, that's telling us that there's a coming revelation. Because every single time that we see this motif of a mountain being presented to us, we're called back to the numerous revelations that come about with the ascent of a mountain. And it makes sense that a mountain is required for us to receive revelation, because to climb a mountain requires work. To climb a mountain requires us to set ourselves aside, like, like Christ does with Peter, James, and John, 
and ascend. But that ascent itself requires effort. So the motif of ascending a mountain seems to indicate that, well, nothing we receive without work seems to be of value. We can get things without putting the work in. And we don't seem to value those things as much as we would the things that we receive through hard work, through our labors. And so when God reveals himself to man or gives some form of revelation to humanity, he requires this work, he requires this investment, if you will, on behalf of the person. So like Moses, Christ ascends a mountain, and he ascends that mountain with the inner circle, with these three individuals who have been set apart. And when he ascends this mountain, well, what's the revelation that takes place? His garments become glistening, intensely white, that no fuller, so no uh, laundry mat could honestly bleach. And in this bleaching, in this radical purity that's revealed, what we see is a revelation of Christ being the new Adam. We see the revelation of Christ purifying humanity. And in the same vein, when we're baptized, when we put on Christ, what do we do? Well, we put on a black, a white robe. And that white robe symbolizes this rebirth this rebirth in Christ, this purity that we are putting on in Christ. Because Adam, when he fell, he put on garments of skin. And the garment of skin can symbolize our fallenness, our inability to hit the target of life in Christ, our inability to hit the target of what we were intended for. Yet, in this revelation of Christ transfigured on top of the mountain, what we see is that we're offered this possibility of purity, this possibility of renewal. And that renewal is so potent that the viewer can't even describe how the brightness is. Like The, the only example that can be given that we see here in Mark is that no launderer can whiten a garment as much as this glistening garment is whitened in front of the apostles. And that's a reminder to us that well, when we put on Christ, when we set out to live this life in him, when we cast off the cares of this world and strive to live in this garment of Christ rather than this garment of flesh, what happens is we can take that same form. We can also be transfigured because he has been transfigured. And it is up to us to then have that relationship with him, strive to be Christ, striving to be Christ-like. And ultimately, in that striving, we will be able to take that same form. But what's also happening here is we're seeing the authority of Christ 
revealed to us. Because Christ is standing there with two figures, and those figures are Moses, who we mentioned earlier, because again, we have this revelatory motif that's taking place on top of the mountain, and we also see Elijah. So Moses and Elijah can symbolize a lot of things. Uh, One in particular is the law and the prophets, since Moses is the giver of the law, and Elijah is one of the chief of the prophets. It can also symbolize the living and the dead, because Elijah is taken up into heaven, living in a fiery chariot, and Moses is said at the end of Exodus to have died. Yet, it can also symbolize the divine counsel of God, which the saints, as they live this Christ-like life, ascend to, where they confer among Christ. But I think it's also important for us to realize that Christ is standing in the midst of them. He is not standing equally with them. So when Peter says that he wants to make equal booths for them, because he doesn't know what to say, he's so nervous because of what he's seen in this this transfiguration, the reason why he's not allowed to do this is because Christ is not equal with Moses and Elijah. Christ is rather the Logos who in the beginning created all. He is the one who gave the revelations of God to Moses and to Elijah. And because of their acceptance of that revelation, they are now in his heavenly court. They are now there talking with him, but they are not the ones that are teaching him. He does not ascend the mountain to learn from them in the same way that they ascended the mountain to learn from God, but rather he is the one who has always been chief at at top that mountain, atop that heavenly hierarchy. And from this position... He is the one who teaches us, who reveals himself to us. And we see that revelation take place even further when the cloud descends upon all of the people present at this moment, and we hear the voice of God cry out from the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. Because immediately after that, Everything that was seen by the three apostles dissipates. They are given this great revelation. The cloud descends to cover up the fullness of God. Because we can't see this fullness of God without being ready for it. We can't experience this fullness of God without experiencing some form of harm. Because we constantly fall short. And in that falling short of the kingdom of heaven, what happens is sometimes we can experience judgment. We can experience physical pain. We can even experience death, as we see in the Old Testament, for those who are confronted with the glory of God and are not ready, are not purified, are not conducive with that divinity. And that's not something that should deter us from striving to live this life in Christ. 
but rather that's a reality that we need to understand because in Christ taking the form of a human, in Christ condescending to truly become one of us, he gives us a mode of relating to him. Yet, in the revelation of his true divinity, we see that there needs to be a cloud, there needs to be some partial covering. And this is why Christ, again, has been talking to his apostles in parables, and they have not been fully grasping what's happening. It's because if we are not ready to fully wrap our minds around who God is and how we live a life in him, well then, we need to be given milk before we're given meat. We need to be given glimpses at who God is before we're given the whole. Because if we are not ready to fully put on Christ, and if we are not ready to live this ultimate life in him, well then, we're not ready to receive the fullness of what that revelation will entail. So God will make this proclamation from a cloud, saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Because if God was face to face with these apostles, they would not be able to withstand his glory, because they have not been purified. They have not, they have not yet fully grasped what it is they're being called towards. Yet, as we see with Moses and Elijah sitting in this heavenly council, in this heavenly court, they have won the good fight. They've won the race, in a sense. They are now able to sit face to face with God. But no mortal is able to do that. And that's why, again, in the Old Testament, we see this motif of man only being able to see the back of God. But in Christ, we are able to sit with God as equals. In Christ, we are able, rather to sit with God as peers is he has invited us to this relationship and in that invitation we have the responsibility to fully wrestle with what that means and in wrestling with what that means we are also called to take action and live that life centered in Christ so moving on to verse 9, because we could spend plenty of time talking about the transfiguration. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man should come, should have risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the raising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So immediately as they're descending this mountain, we see Christ tell the three apostles who are with him, that they shouldn't tell anyone what they've seen until the Son of Man raises from the dead. And in this saying, 
the apostles, the three, James, John, and Peter, are confused by what he's saying. Is they're not thinking about his coming resurrection that he's warning them of, but rather they're thinking about the general uh, resurrection, the resurrection of old humanity at the end of days. And in that confusion, we see them bring up Elijah because there's this tradition that Elijah will come since he's ascended into heaven. He, and he had not died, he will come again when it's time for the second coming, when it's time for this general resurrection of the dead. So in the sense, they're fixated on their preconceptions. But what Christ is trying to tell them is, I am going to suffer, I am going to die, and on the third day, I am going to rise. There is this coming resurrection of my body that will be emblematic of the resurrection of all those who live a life in me. And that's what he's preparing them for. Yet, the apostles are stuck on this prophecy, if you will. They're stuck on their preconception of what they believe is going to be the resurrection. And so instead of chastising them, what Christ does is he uses this motif. And he says that Elijah has come. And this Elijah he's speaking of, he is John, in a sense. It's a type of Elijah. Because John is the last of the prophets, the greatest of the prophets. And if that's the case, he is a type of Elijah. And what does he say? Well, he says that the Son of Man, as it's been spoken of, so going back to Daniel, will be treated shamefully. So that's calling again back to Isaiah and this motif of the suffering servant. And Elijah, John, if you will, has been treated likewise. So what he's warning his apostles here is that their minds are set on this glorious messianic king coming. Their minds are set on the glory of the things that are to come, but they're missing the hardship that's going to be attached to that glory. So he's preparing them. He's telling them, listen, you saw what happened to John. That is prefiguring what is going to happen to me. If John was this great type of Elijah, and they did this to John, what are they going to do to me? And then, subsequently, what are they going to do to you? He's telling them this not to tear them down, but rather he's telling them this to build them up through the revelation of his resurrection and the resurrection that comes for all of us if we live a life in him. So this is what we need to wrap our head around. It's not the fixation, if you will, upon aspects of the scriptures, but rather it's looking at the whole of the scriptures centered in Christ. There are three major tenets that I think we need to remember whenever we're analyzing anything in the scripture, and it's the fact that there is an incarnation, and the reason why the Incarnation is important for us is because that's God taking flesh. And it's a revelation of God's love for us. Christ himself 
is this ultimate revelation because God condescends. God takes the form of a human. He's the creator of all, and yet he willingly becomes a part of his creation. And then doing so, he gives us the opportunity for a life in him. He gives us the opportunity for this life eternal. And that is an ultimate form of love, because that is something that he doesn't need to do. If he's the creator of all, he can detach himself from his creation, because he created it. And yet, instead of detaching himself, instead of being off in the ether somewhere, God takes the form of man. God becomes part of his creation. He takes on the suffering and the struggles that each and every one of us lives through. And that leads us to the second aspect that's important. We need to remember the crucifixion. So we remember the incarnation because it's this revelation of God's love for us. And that leads us immediately, in terms of thought, to the crucifixion. Because the crucifixion is participation in that ultimate act of love, that salvific act of self-offering. Because if God takes the form of a human, well, he needs to, again, live that full human experience. And ultimately, what happens to all of us? Well, we die. We suffer. We have these afflictions affect us. So if Christ came and didn't die and didn't suffer, well, then he wouldn't experience this full gambit of human experiences. And thus we wouldn't be freed from the afflictions that assail us. So it's important for us to remember, again, these two principles. We have the incarnation, but the incarnation is not enough. So we need to have the crucifixion, because the crucifixion is an expression of this love. But there's a third aspect that we need to draw our minds to, and that third aspect is resurrection. All too often, Christians, myself included, and whenever I make these criticisms or critiques, number one, I'm speaking to myself and trying to remind myself that this is something that's important because I am the one who typically falls short of this understanding. And a lot of what you're hearing here in this podcast and this Bible study is me wrestling with these internal thoughts that I'm having and these struggles that I'm having as well. But all too often as Christians, we fixate on the crucifixion and we miss the resurrection. Yes, Christ had to come. Yes, Christ had to suffer. But that suffering has an end goal. And that goal is eternal life. Because it's through the willing participation in that suffering. It's through the willing taking up of that cross that we see this transformation take place. And the transformation is of death itself. Because death is the absence of God. Death is our ultimate deviation from God. Yet life is aligning ourselves with God. So if God himself died willingly, and we take up that same cross, if we aim for God single-mindedly, well, in that process of taking up our own crosses, 
in Christ, we too can transfigure or transform this hardship. We can transform death. So it's important for us whenever we're looking at any aspect of the scriptures to remember these three tenets. To remember that there is an incarnation. That there is a crucifixion. And ultimately there's a resurrection. Because these three, as one actions, are the central point of the entire scriptures. They're the central point of how we understand our life in Christ. And they're the lens by which we're trying to wrap our head around everything that we're reading, whether it be in the Old Testament, the New Testament, whether it be in the epistles, whether it be in Revelation, you name it. It's all pointing to the central act of salvation, the central act of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ. Because in these three, we see our ultimate call to do likewise. And we see the possibility of us being able to do likewise. So I think it's important as we continue to read the scriptures and as we continue to wrestle with everything that's happening here, that we call our minds to the aspects of Christ's incarnation, so God's taking flesh, his suffering, which is ultimately his running the full gambit of human experience, death. But we need to also remember that in his birth, in his death, also comes his resurrection. Because in his willing acceptance of death, we see that transformative quality take place. So moving on to verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd about them, and the scribes again with them, arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a dumb spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has he had this? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If I can all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You dumb and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, 
This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So there's a lot going on within these verses. We see Christ in Peter, James, and John meet up again with the other apostles, and we see that they are in the middle of a debate with the leaders of the day. And the debate is surrounding the fact that they have this boy who is demon-possessed, and they are unable to cast the demon out. So Christ approaches the crowd, and he asks them what's going on. And immediately from that crowd, we see the boy's father pipe up and say that he has brought his child, who has been afflicted by the spirit, to them, and his apostles were not able to cast it out. So he's casting the blame on the apostles in that sense. He's looking for Christ. Yet the apostles who are following Christ are at this moment incapable of casting out this demon. And later on, we see in the verse that the only thing that can cast out the spirit, this demon, is prayer. And we also see in some manuscripts, prayer and fasting. The reason why prayer is the only thing that can cast out that form of demon is because it is the willing communion with God, is the willing conversation with God, is the setting aside of all of our worldly cares and honestly and freely opening ourselves up to the will of God. So what we see here is that for some reason... Well, the reason is obvious if we've read prior chapters. It's the hardness of their hearts. The apostles are not fully able to cast out the Spirit. And so, what does Christ do? Well, he laments the fact that this is the case. He cries out, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Because he genuinely feels pain at the fact that this is the state that we're in. This is the state of his apostles. And generally speaking, this is the state of all of us. And so what does he do? Well, he reaches out to the man and asks him to further express what has happened. And the man says to Christ that the spirit has been with his child since, uh, his child since childhood, and he expresses the epileptic nature of its manifestation. And in that, he says to Christ, this man that is, if you are able to heal him, please do it. And Christ responds to that if statement by articulating, if I am able. So he is chastising the man, in a sense, for not having full faith. Because if the man had full faith, he would say, you are able. He would truly believe that Christ is able to liberate his son from this demon that has assailed him. Yet we see in this harsh statement by Christ, where he re-articulates his words, and he says that all things are possible for him who believes. 
we see in the response of the man, the response of, I believe, help my unbelief, humility and faith. Because in that response, we see the man lowering himself. We see the man recognizing the fact that he is not fully believed in Christ and the power that he possesses. And in that recognition, the man asks Christ ultimately for help in fully grasping what it is he's capable of doing and fully grasping this faith, this belief. And it's for that reason that Christ is able to cast out a demon. And it's for that reason that, like we saw with Peter's mother-in-law, and like we saw with Jairus' daughter, Christ raises the boy up, and he is cleansed, he is healed. So we need to understand that motif of setting ourselves aside, setting aside our worldly cares, setting aside our preconceptions. So that way, we can honestly pray, we can honestly face God and ask him to help us with our unbelief. Oftentimes we say as Christians that you need to believe in God, that you need to have faith. And yes, that is part of this life in Christ. Because how are you supposed to live a life in him if you don't believe in him, if you don't have faith in him? Yet, we need to realize that we're fallible. We need to realize that we're human beings and oftentimes we miss the mark. We just began, we just spent this entire book talking about how the apostles themselves don't understand who Christ is, even though they're given these revelations because they have this hardness of heart. They continue to harden their own hearts with their preconceptions and their biases. Yet, Christ is constantly inviting them to a deeper, more profound understanding. And in that same vein, we are also being invited to this deeper, more profound understanding. But we, like the father of this child, need to have the humility to say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Because even though we can express that we believe, Oftentimes, our actions are not in line with that expression. So we need to beseech God in prayer, through fasting, for this ability to be able to believe, this ability to be able to truly see. Because we realize, if we're paying close attention to the scriptures, that's only through him that any of this is possible. It's only through our self-emptying and lowering, that we are able to truly repent and live this life in him. So we need to remember this prayer of the man speaking to Christ on behalf of his child. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. As we also struggle with our belief and our faith. So moving on to verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he would not have anyone know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, 
and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So we see immediately Christ leaves the setting where he healed the boy, and he's moving through Galilee. He passes through Galilee. And it said that he would not have anyone know it because he was teaching his disciples, saying to them that there was this coming passion. And through after this passion, there will be a resurrection on the third day. But the apostles don't grasp what he's talking about. They don't fully understand. And in fact, they're afraid to ask him what he means by this. This is the second revelation, well, the second direct revelation that Christ gives his apostles of his coming passion and of his coming re resurrection. It's important to us to realize that in the expression that he was passing through Galilee and he would not have anyone know it, what we see here is that Christ is single-mindedly now moving towards his coming passion. The time of teaching and the time of ministering to all these different towns has ended. And the time of his passion has begun. This is the narrative shift that we see between chapters 8 and 9. It is before Christ is going all over the region. And he's ministering, and he's teaching, and he's proclaiming the gospel, and he's sending his apostles out to do likewise. But now, in a sense, the gang's all together, and they have this objective that they're aiming towards, this target that they're aiming towards, as they're moving down the way. Because, again, that's another motif that we need to understand from Mark. It's that they're moving down the way, and the way is Christ, for he is the way, he is the truth, he is the light. But the way that they are moving down right now is towards his coming passion. So we need to realize that Christ, in this section of the gospel, is aiming centrally at his coming passion. And he will not allow any obstacle to get in his way. In fact, when Peter, again, stands in the way of his passion by chastising Christ for saying that the Son of Man will be persecuted and he will die and he will rise on the third day, he's referred to as Satan. He's referred to as the adversary. And the reason for this is because he is standing opposed to Christ in this ultimate mission. So we need to remember that from here on out, we are aiming single-mindedly at the coming passion. Christ is expressing everything that is entailed within his coming death and resurrection. But the death and the resurrection themselves are our central goal, are our central target. And it's for that reason, again, that we call to mind his incarnation, his crucifixion, which is coming, and the resurrection that comes shortly afterwards, that comes through his crucifixion. And this is what he's reminding his apostles Yet as we're going to see in the next section, his apostles still don't fully grasp the point that he's trying to articulate to them because they set their minds on worldly things. They set their minds on worldly authority. So moving on to verse 
33. <clears throat> and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another who was greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So what we see here in this section is Christ reminding his apostles of his humility and the humility that they are called towards likewise. The apostles are still thinking about things in worldly terms. They're thinking about the coming Messiah as being this general, this liberator who's going to liberate the Jews from their pagan oppressors. And in a sense, this is what is going to happen. But it's not going to be through warfare. It's not going to be through the glory of the age. It's not going to be through the glory of man. And yet, they still have their minds set on this worldly concept. They still think that as Christ comes and liberates them, well, then they're going to be called to rule as the rulers of that day. They're going to be called to sit on thrones above everyone else. And instead of chastising them, again, as we saw with the questioning of Elijah earlier, what Christ does is he takes this opportunity as a teaching moment. And in doing so, he tells them the script is actually flipped. We're inverting your perception of hierarchy. You are going to be first. You're going to be rulers by lowering yourself in being the least of all. And to highlight this example further, what he does is he takes a child and he puts a child in the midst of them. And he tells his apostles that you need to be like this child. So to add broader context to that motif, well, children within nearest Eastern time, all well, societies of Christ, were seen to have no rights. They were basically the property of their parents. And if that was the case, well, those children had no form of autonomy. In fact, infanticide was something that was rampant in Roman society. You see in the early church, there is this emphasis, if you will, of bringing in orphans, of bringing in these children who have been cast out because when they're left on the streets, they're literally left to die. So what Christ is reminding his disciples is not only do they need to be lowly, not only do they need to place themselves in that same state, but they are also called to minister to those who are in that state and do not have the ability to get out. They're able, they're called rather, to bear one another's burdens 
and to receive their brothers and sisters freely as one of these children. Because Christ invites all of us into his kingdom. But Christ also tells us that if we are to receive the glory of the kingdom, well, we need to lower ourselves first. Because it's through this lowering, as we see in Christ's death and his lowering into the earth, that his raising can take place. So like we saw in the last section, when the boy who is possessed by the demon drops to the ground and convulses, and then the demon leaves him, he needs to be as one who is dead. He needs to be in this position where everyone around them is saying, well, th th this kid just died. I don't know what's going on here. For Christ to reveal his resurrection, for Christ to raise him up. So in the same vein, he is telling his apostles here that you need to be like one of these children. You need to be like one of these lowly people, the lowest of low. So that way you can not only take responsibility for ministering to your peers, those around you who are also laid low, but ultimately through that ministry, you will then be made worthy of receiving the kingdom. So this is what he's trying to remind them. This is what he's telling them. It's not that they're going to have the authority of this age if we're going to stick with that motif. It's rather that he is going, they are going to have the authority of the age that comes in him. So moving on to verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw a man casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose his reward. So what we see here is another exorcist. We see a person who is not one of the twelve, a person who is not one of the 70, who is not part of the circle around Christ, casting out demons in his name. So John, zealous as he is, sees this and he says, well, you're not following Christ, you're not with us, so stop doing this act. And then he comes to Christ proudly proclaiming, hey, I look what I did. I saw this guy who was casting out demons in your name, yet he's not with us. And I told him to stop doing that. Yet, what Christ does here is he tells him not to forbid him from doing this. Because all those who do the mighty acts of God in Christ's name will soon not be able to speak evil of him. So what that means is if you are already participating in a sense in this life in Christ eventually the articulation of why you're doing that act will manifest itself and we see this in all people who come to christ who come to the church is you don't start off 
living this life in Christ by understanding concepts and intellectually trying to wrestle with God. Maybe that will lead us to him eventually, but as we see in the scriptures time and time again, there is this motif of action, there's this motif of embodiment that needs to also take place. So what Christ is telling John here is not to forbid this man who is casting out demons in his name, because he's clearly doing good. He's liberating people from evil. And he's doing it in the name of Christ, even though he doesn't fully understand or grasp what it is that he's doing. He's doing good. That seed is being planted. And the hope is that that seed can be fostered. But how would that be possible if he's forbidden from doing these good acts? How would that be possible if John cuts him off at the pass before he realizes why he's truly doing these deeds? We are all called, again, to live this life in Christ. I say it time and time again, and oftentimes I think I fail to articulate the magnitude or the reality of what that means. Because in living that life in Christ, we are called towards action. And that action is the good works that Christ himself has done for us. So if we're called to minister to the lowly in whatever way, shape, or form we are capable of, if we are called to liberate people from sin by taking responsibility for our own sins. Well, if that's the case, well, that is participation in Christ. That is striving towards the good, in a sense. And ultimately, whether we're cognizant of the fact or not, that participation will lead us towards him. And it's going to be through that initial participation that later articulation will take place. We do good first, and then we rationalize why we did these good acts. But if we fail to do good, if we choose evil rather than good, and we participate in that evil... Well, ultimately, what are we doing? Well, we're manifesting the spirit of evil. We're embodying the name of the evil one. But if we're embodying the name of Christ, as we see in this exorcist, ultimately, what we're doing is putting on Christ. Ultimately, what we're doing is manifesting this ultimate reality of a life in him. But that's not done without action. So this is what we need to wrap our head around. This is what we need to constantly remember. It's that we are called towards this life of action. We are called to participate in good. In doing that, we're also called not to hinder those who are doing good just because they're not a part of our group just because they're not with us in a sense. Because if they're truly doing good, and if we have truly put on Christ so we understand what good is, 
because we're looking at all actions within the light of him, well, then it's our responsibility not to hinder these people, not to stop these people who are doing good, but rather it's our responsibility to lift them up and help them in their actions and aid them where we can so that way that good continues to spread. And hopefully, by the grace of God, if that's the direction he's calling them towards, they will inevitably find him. But revealing God to them is not our ultimate goal. Rather, participation in God through these good works is our goal, because it's only through that participation that he can ultimately reveal himself to them. We are not God. We are not meant to reveal him in that sense. Rather, we are called to give people the opportunity to put on Christ. The opportunity to take on this life in him. So ultimately, we need to remember that we are called, like John, not to hinder people who do good in the name of Christ. It is ultimately through that participation in good. It's our prayer that they will wrap their head around and realize what that participation has led towards. So moving on to the final section and verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you reason? How will you season it? <clears throat> Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So there's a lot to unpack in this final section. Initially, what do we see? We see Christ calling his apostles back to the children, the little ones. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is a very harsh statement, yet it's one that we need to internalize and fully grasp. Because what Christ is saying is that if we are leaders, if we are responsible for fostering people in this life in him, and we fail to do that, that is one thing. But if we fail to live this life in Christ and ultimately cause others to sin, cause others to miss him, rather, if we live in hell and drag others down with us into this pit, into our mire, what Christ is saying then is what we will receive 
is so dark that it would be better for us to just end it all. And that's not Christ telling us, well, go kill yourself. Rather, what he's saying in this example is we need to grasp how serious the call is that we're given to foster and minister to those who are lowly, those who trust us, those who put their faith in us. Because if we fall, well, we can always get back up. But if we continuously fall, and then in that fallenness, we drag others down with us, well, we become more so children of hell than children of God. Is we become adversaries of God in that regard. We become like the demons. So that's what he's telling us with this metaphor of the millstone and the children. What he's telling us is if we are called to live this life in him, if we are called to lead others towards him, and we fail in that calling, well, that's one thing. But if we fail in that calling and then choose to drag others down with us in our failure, well, we become these adversaries. We become these children of hell. So that's what he's telling us there. And that sets up our understanding of what he tells us in these next sections. Is we can focus on the examples that he gives, the hand, of the foot, of the eye. The hand, again, is this principle of action. The foot is this principle of motion, and the eye is this principle of sight. And we can wrestle with all of these various motifs that come along with their symbol. Yet ultimately, what Christ is telling us is if something or someone hinders us from living this life in him, we need to divide ourselves from that force. Because it is better for us to enter the kingdom of heaven divided from those people or that aspect of ourself than to not enter into it at all. And we need to break that down because that's a very serious concept for us to wrestle with. A concept that people often take for granted to use to justify their actions. I've done this myself time and time again in life. Because again, every single I'll say chastisement or critique that I make of Christians here, I'm making primarily of myself. And time and time again, I have justified cutting people out of my life by looking at this verse. And oftentimes what you can do in doing this is take it lightly. In sitting and saying that, well, okay, it's better for me to enter the kingdom of heaven you know, with a missing foot than it is for me to go into damnation, go into hell, go into Gehenna with two feet. Well, then you can say, well, something along the lines of, oh, it's better for me to cut these people off than it is for me to not be able to receive whatever it is I'm called towards. 
this is the interpretation that Theophil Act has. It's that what Christ is referring to is those people who hinder us from being able to live a life in Christ. Yet, what I'm talking about and taking that lightly is that oftentimes we don't wrestle with the full parameters of what that will entail. We don't wrestle with the sin that we often cause in our actions. And if we cut people off, if we cut out aspects of ourselves that weren't supposed to be cut away, well, what we're left with is an incomplete picture. And it's ultimately the opposite of what Christ is calling us towards. Because what Christ is calling us towards here is fullness and life in him. And that fullness requires unity. That fullness requires true unity that is seen in him. So if something hinders that unity, if something is the product of sin, it is not part of this picture. Yet, if something is meant to be part of this picture, and through us casting it off, we are actively engaging in sin, well then, we've missed the point. So if we have people in our lives, let's say, that we cut out because it would be more work for us to wrestle with all of the pieces and components of relationships with them in the light of Christ, well then, we've missed the mark in a sense. Because in cutting those people off, all that we've done is we've caused a greater divide between us and them. And inadvertently, we might have created a divide that pushes us further and further away from Christ rather than drawing closer to him. And that's our responsibility to try and do what we can to bridge that divide, to bridge that gap. Sometimes we're unable to do that. But regardless of what we are able to do, we need to wrestle with the fullness of our sin. We need to strive towards healing the divides, the schisms that we have created. And in doing that, ultimately, we are striving towards the kingdom. So again, what Christ is telling us here is that anything that hinders us from entering the kingdom, anything that hinders us from entering this life in him, yeah, we need to cut that off. We need to separate that from us. And yes, that can be people. That can be aspects of ourselves. That could be habits that we have. You name it. But before we take that action of cutting those people off, or take that action of cutting out that habit, or take that action of cutting out that aspect of ourself. We need to wrestle with it seriously. And we need to ask ourselves the question of, well, is there something more that I am called to do? 
Is there something more that I am called towards in wrestling with this aspect of myself, this person, this habit, you name it? Or have I done everything that I'm capable of doing? And now I need to just offer it up to God and sever it from my life in the sense that I am no longer going to engage in it. It's a very difficult thing for us to wrestle with, and I think I'm doing a very poor job here in articulating it. So instead of rambling on further, I'll move on to the final point. But the final point is when Christ talks to us about salt. What he's calling us back to is the understanding of sacrifice. Because in the Levitical tradition, there's this understanding of seasoning, this understanding of making the sacrifice palatable to God. Yet, if we are called to be salted, if we are called to be palatable for God, and we live a life where we get rid of that saltiness, where we get rid of that palatability, where we make ourselves incompatible with the divine, well, how are we going to reclaim that? What Christ is telling us to do here is to have salt in ourselves. And what that means is he's telling us to fully grasp what it means for us to live a life in him, to live for the good rather than for the evil. Because all too often we become enmeshed in evil. All too often we fall short of the kingdom of God. And when that's the case, well, we lose this compatibility. We lose the quality that's necessary for us to be willing sacrifices. And if that's the case, well, what do we have? We have disorder. We have hell, ultimately. So what Christ is calling us to do is to have peace. To live up to this calling. To be adequate and willing sacrifices. And ultimately, that requires us to have peace with one another. That requires us to live up to our call for life in him. That requires us to lead in whatever way he is calling us to lead. To deviate from sin and reorient ourselves towards Christ. But as we've mentioned in prior studies, well, it's important for us to realize we need to take the posture of a student. We need to lower ourselves. Willingly, we need to set aside all of our worldly cares and all of our preconceptions and say to God, God, help me see what it is that you want me to do. And from that lowly perspective of a student, then we'll be able to see how it is we take action to repent, how it is that we literally reorient our life towards him. So this is what he's calling us to do in having salt in ourselves. He's calling for us to do what we can in this life to prepare ourselves for the life that is to come. And through that action, 
we know what the ultimate reward is because that ultimate reward is eternal life in him. So the prayer that Christ gives us is that we have salt in ourselves and that we have peace with one another because we can't do this alone. We are all called as the body of Christ to have a life in him. So if that's the case, we need to do what we can to forgo schisms and divisions when possible. We need to do what we can in our own life to take responsibility for our actions and set out to live the best life that we can. But living that best life is not subjective in the sense that we predicate what that means. Living that best life, rather, is dependent on living a life in Christ. So thank you all again for participating in this week's session of Make His Path Straight, our St. John the Baptist Bible study. And until next time, I'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m. and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.